This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Right at the top, that's the way you rank. Yep, all about the big banks over the last week or so. And shares of Morgan are rallying. Morgan Stanley, that is, rallying as the bank's almost flawless quarter gets a round of applause from investors. Let's get into the results. Laura Keller with us, banking and Wall Street reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio here in New York. And then joining us on the phone in New York City, Ed Groshans, senior vice president and lead banking analyst at Height Capital Markets. Laura, let's start with you. The quarter really solid for Morgan Stanley. Oh, yeah. Very, very (laughs) much. yeah, she says. You know, and you don't always get to say that, so it's kind of nice. (laughs) But definitely from, you know, whether it's an investment banking perspective, whether it's a trading perspective, or even if you look at their wealth management side, things were really incredibly good at Morgan Stanley. I think the only thing that we saw that wasn't as stellar as anything else was just the expenses. The analysts had expected them not to be as high as they were. Um, But in terms of investment banking, it it was just a real blowout. They really did better than anybody else on the street. And is it that they did well for Morgan Stanley or just compared to the group? They do not have the highest fees um, for the group. And that goes to JP Morgan in terms of investment banking, but they have the biggest growth. Um, but certainly on the equity side, they've kept their crown there on the trading. Pretty cool. Ed, come on in on this. How'd you see the quarter? I, I thought it was, a, I agree with all that. I thought it was a very good quarter. Um, and, and yes, I guess we have to nitpick on the expenses. That's the one thing that stood out. But they did say that a lot of that was volume driven. So it's it's not a, a bad expense. A lot of that volume is driven by client activity, which results in a nice quarter for Morgan Stanley. Anything that we got, Ed, here that tells you like what's to come from Morgan Stanley? Because I feel like these big banks, I mean, it can it can vary from quarter to quarter based on the environment, based on, you know, whether or not you made some trades right, whether or not you did some deals. So I, I think there's two two elements. I think going forward, it looks like investment banking remains strong. There seems to be a good backlog. And so I would anticipate that the performance there continues to be strong. Um, we are coming into the summer months. Trading does slow down a bit. Uh, it's it's going to be tough to beat second quarter earnings or, or results for trading over the summer months. But I think they're going to try to grind it out and do so. But if, if anything is going to give me concern, it would be on the trading side of things, not the investment banking side. How do you see it, Laura? Yeah, I think that's a, a good read, Ed, from, from what I heard on those conference calls. But I'd be curious, and Ed, you know, jumping with your perspective here, some of the themes I I was thinking about, you know, when we see these investment banking revenues continue to rise, it's not only the M&A picture that's driving that. So that's where, you know, the banks are going and giving the advice mm-hmm. to these companies. But it's also, you see it on the equity capital market side, you know, new stock sales, secondary stock sales. But also, there's resilience in the debt capital market side. A lot of people thought that that would wane because, in, you know, interest rates right. have risen. But that really hasn't happened. Now, some of that could be you do have debt deals that happen and on the back of M&A. But I'd be curious, Ed, your thoughts on that. You know, is is, is it going to be all of those three things with strength or, or will one of those wane in the second half? 
you know, I, I agree with your rising rates. You know, I think what that does is it has a pull-forward effect on debt issuances. And so I would anticipate that as we sit here and watch what's happening with the interest rate markets, that debt issuance should be pretty good for the balance of the year. Um, you know, at some point, inflation is going to start weighing in on the 10-year and lift that up. And I think folks want to get, if they have debt that's coming due, get it done today rather than next year when it's higher. And I think that that's one thing that's going to benefit them. Uh, on, on the investment banking and M&A side, you know, we, you know, and Jamie Dimon said this on J.P. Morgan's call as well, it's, we have a very robust economy right now. And I think, you know, it's, it's going very well here in the U.S. And uh, James Gorman today on his call at Morgan Stanley said that globally they're seeing the strength and they even highlighted EMEA as one of the areas the emerging markets you know yeah. which have really been beaten up big up. time yeah yeah right so it's it's not just US but we're we're seeing a global lift and i think that that's going to benefit all the investment banks at least in the third quarter and fourth quarter we'll have to see how next year starts to pan out well Laura as you said you tweeted okay i'm coming to the end of my coverage of big banks in this earnings cycle um if you add it all up, what are we learning about not only the sector, but also about maybe the, the global economy and the global marketplace right now? The executives were very specific in terms of the economy, like Ed is saying. They are saying that things are really good. I mean, Jamie Dimon, you know, even when you took, talk about something like trade wars, you know, where is this tariff going to be coming? How will that impact the banks? Will it be bad? I mean, if you look at someone like Jamie Dimon, he's saying, you know, that's not being, that's not affecting us now. If anything, he said, it's affecting psyche more mm. than it's affecting the economics. So when you take that picture, there are things to, that people are worried about, as they often are. But the underpinnings of the economy just are very strong. And you saw that, too, on the consumer side. You know, Bank of America, which did not, by the way, have a good investment banking quarter. They were the only one who didn't. They had a stellar performance in the consumer side. So you really are seeing, you know, people are borrowing. There's not a lot of defaults. Mm. So that kind of place for banks to be is it's great. You know, you're not having defaults and you're able to get more interest income out of people because rates are rising. A lot of optimism. Ed, how did you see it in terms of what we heard from uh, the various bank executives and what it tells us kind of about the bigger, broader market environment? I think there's so – for the second quarter here, what we're really starting to see is a lot of positive trends coming through. Loan growth isn't going gangbusters, but we are seeing a number of institutions start to beat that 2 to 3%. We're starting to see some 4 or 5% growth numbers there. Uh, and, Laura, you mentioned credit. I mean, credit is just phenomenal. It's, it's just not an issue for the banking industry. And in this environment with a rising rate and loans growing, I think outperformance is the way the sector is going to go. And I I think Jamie Dimon's right. It's the psyche. And that's that's why people are starting to stay away. They're worried about the trade wars. But hopefully we can resolve those and we shall see the financial institutions outperform. Right before it becomes too much action, starts to impact everything. Um, folks, thank you so much. Laura Keller, our own Laura Keller, banking and Wall Street reporter at Bloomberg News in our 1130 studio in New York. Check her out on Twitter at Laura J. Keller. And our thanks to Ed Groshens. He's senior vice president, lead banking analyst at Height Capital Markets on the phone in New York City. Oh, yeah. We may not be in a financial crisis or crisis of sorts, but, you know, another one will probably come. Among our most read stories on the Bloomberg Terminal today, some former Fed officials voicing concern about the next crisis. Let's get into his story. Rich Miller wrote it. He's our economics reporter at Bloomberg News. He's in our Bloomberg 991 study studio excuse me, in Washington, D.C. So, Rich... 
What are some folks worried about? Well, you've got what uh, I like to maybe call the trio of doom. Uh, <laughs> I like that. We have um, a former uh, New York Fed president and Treasury Secretary Geithner, Tim Geithner, former Federal Reserve Chair Ben Bernanke, and uh, former Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson. And they had a, a briefing for reporters. Uh, basically, you know, we're 10 years on from the last crisis, and they, they sort of uh, gave us a, a little bit of uh, an idea of what their thinking is. And they're a little worried that we uh, might not be as prepared for another crisis as we should be. Uh, yes, there were a lot of reforms uh, put in place uh, after uh, the last crisis. The banks are in a lot better shape. Um, uh, the, uh, the financial system in, as a whole is, is, is in better shape. Uh, there's less, um, less worries about money market funds, for example. But what they're worried about was that because there was a backlash against the bailouts, Congress also took away a lot of the emergency powers that uh, uh, these three guys employed during the last crisis to, you know, to avoid Armageddon. And so, you know, the, for example, the Fed, which ended up uh, lending money to AIG, you remember them? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the big insurance company uh, that was making uh, uh, all sorts of bets not involved in insurance. Um, the new law, the Dodd-Frank law, prohibits the Fed from effectively doing that again. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are a whole bunch of other things. That the, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which was very key in sort of guaranteeing bank debt, uh, is also had limits on that. And the Treasury is limited. On one of, and so these guys are worried that if we get, you know, you know when the proverbial hits the fan next time mm-hmm. and, and uh, the, uh, the current crop of policymakers look into their toolkit – a lot right. of the tools that were there, were there before are not going to be there, and yeah. it's not going to be uh, that easy to, to get us out. What's interesting, too, and I feel like there is slowly growing momentum about our growing deficits. Mm-hmm. And that yes. is something that this trio of doom talked about. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, um, obviously, when we had the last crisis, you know, Obama uh, – came out with this like massive stimulus um, of you know, that included tax cuts but right. a lot of spending of about 800 billion dollars and and that helped um, most economists would say that helped get us out of the of 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 of, of the uh, very deep recession we're in but you know since then, since then, you know, the debt as our U.S. government debt has ballooned, and it's about as a proportion of the economy, it's about double what it was back then. So it might not be that easy to, you know, spend all that money uh, as we were as we did back then. Wait, I have to. I love this stat in your story. These are the kind of things that make me stop and just like sit with it. You write publicly held federal debt now stands at seventy seven percent of gross domestic product, double what it was in two thousand seven. So we have a ton more debt. Um, some and, of that, more de- and more debt on the way. Right. And some of that probably because of the crisis, right, I'm assuming. Definitely. definitely. Um, but, but the point is we just did a round of tax cuts. So if we get into trouble, we really can't do that again. Either, or we're going to be growing debt even more so. Yeah. I mean, there will probably be – it will be politically more difficult. To, it was very difficult for Obama to, to do that big pa- package. But it's you know it's even more difficult to you know add to your credit card when your credit card you know balance is is double what it was the first time around, uh, 
And you, you, you never know, but, you know, maybe some of our creditors would start saying, hmm, you know, yeah. boy, these guys are borrowing a lot. Yeah. Know? No, but it's interesting. You know, we've had a lot of conversations about you have two there in, in our Washington newsroom just about, you know, how the Fed, we kind of want to get back to normal. We want to see the Fed to some extent right. raise rates somewhat so that if we do, I mean, we, we live through cycles. We know it. We've all, most of us have lived through ups and downs in terms of our economic cycles and market cycles that you want the Fed to have some room to lower rates if they need to. Mm, yeah, and and and, and uh, Tim Geithner voiced some concern about that. I mean, the, the Fed interest rate now is, say, roughly 2%, their benchmark rate. And going into the last crisis, you know, they were at five and a quarter. And they ended up having to spend all that five and a quarter plus go to quantitative easing uh, just to try to help help stay, stave stave off the crisis. Mm-hmm. Now they've only got. I mean, if, if something happened, God forbid, tomorrow if we had some other, you know, something out of the blue hit us. Right. They don't. They they'd only have you know two percentage points to cut. Yeah. Uh, uh, so. Uh, but, Not a lot but, of weapons but, to play with. No, but Bernanke, <laughs> Bernanke, you know, Bernanke, I think put in a, you know, hard to put a little optimistic glossy and say, well, well, you know. It may be bad, but we're not as bad as those other guys. <laughs> Look at the European Central Bank. They, you know, their, their benchmark interest rate right. is zero. They've got nowhere to go. It's all relative. It's all perspective, <laughs> right? right? right. And, and in a crisis, who knows, right? You know, everybody seems to kind of come to be able to come together ultimately and whether or not we could do that again. Yeah, um, I mean, that, that, that is a big question given uh, you know, right? the toxic atmosphere down here. Uh, that, and they yeah. did come together at the last crisis. But It's a great story. And as I mentioned, among the most read on the Bloomberg terminal, Rich Miller, thank you so much. He's our economics reporter at Bloomberg News from our 991 studio in Washington. Don't you Everybody, Vectra Networks, if you're not familiar with the company, well, you should be because they use artificial intelligence to check out, detect, and respond to cyber attacks, and they're doing this all in real time. Let's get an update on the company and the possibility of going public. We might get into that. Hitesh Seth is back with us. He's CEO of Vectra Networks based in San Jose, California, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio here in New York City. Nice to have you here in studio. Welcome Great back. Great to be here. Great to be here. Remind everybody what you guys do specifically. So, so we, we are a company based out of San Jose, California. And uh, we are building software, in essence, that leverages AI to help large customers automate how they hunt for threats. Um, what are some of the more recent trends you're seeing when it comes to cyber attacks? You know, one of the one of the areas that we are seeing um, significant interest in from our customers is how do they address um, what we internally, in our parlance, called east-west problem in the data center. So what that essentially means is that you know you've got a large enterprise that's been hacked. And usually the, the hacker's intent is not the individual that they're hacking. They really want to get to the, the core assets yeah. of that enterprise. And those core assets typically reside inside the data center. And, and so once the hacker makes their way inside the enterprise, they move inside the, inside the data center. And in industry parlance, that is known as east-west coverage. Ah. And that's a significant gap in, in most large enterprises that we run across. And that's where you really get to something that's of importance of to critical a company a- absolutely. or an entity. Absolutely. That's where intellectual property tends to reside. That's where financial information tends to reside, et cetera. Can you – I mean, what's the success rate once somebody's in? So this is what you guys do. Yeah, that's what we do. I, and and it, it, in the absence of technologies like us – um, you know the success of somebody getting to you know the 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 IP that they care about is I would say north of seventy five percent. It's very very high, 
right? Because traditional uh, methodologies simply don't succeed in this regard. I, there are well-known t- stats at this point, which yeah. is, you know, once the the hacker gets in, it takes them like, they have like free reign for like three to six months. Imagine uh, that. Yeah, that's a lot of time to yeah, play around. Exactly. And create a lot of problems. Hitesh, you know what's interesting too? I feel like, and you kind of, kicked it off before we got going. We were talking about some things. Um, we recently did a story in Bloomberg Business Week that t- looked at Rio Tinto and their operations in China. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, they were attacked or allegedly correct. attacked by the Chinese government. That's correct. Um, it's interesting listening to the U.S.-Russian relations yes. and the elections. And we're finding it's sovereign entities that are often doing the hacking. Correct. Do I mean, this has been going on for a long time. Is it going on on a much greater scale than we even realize? It is. It is. And actually, there are two, there are two dimensions to this hacking that are worth noting here. Right? I think it is fair to say that every major nation state today, including the United States, mm-hmm. um, has some form of cyber offense for national security purposes and, and cyber defense. But what is what is is it defensive or offensive? It, it can be either. Okay. Right? It can be either, and and we are not unique. I think we would say it's us, yeah. the Chinese, the Russians, Israel, so on and so forth. But what is definitely true is that, unlike the United States, um, you know, other countries, notably say China, participate on the in the economic version of this. United States is not after stealing anybody's intellectual property. Right. Right. We will do this to to defend ourselves and protect our interests. But other countries are in the in the business of actually stealing. Intellectual property. So when you talk about Rio Tinto in China, right, that is it's a fascinating it, it, story. It's, it's all about you know economic interests. Yeah. And it's economic interests, right? And yeah. you see that with, with China, you see that with Russia. Um, Russia is more complicated for all kinds of other reasons. Um, and but you know this is th- this distinction. I'm, I'm not sure is fully appreciated when people talk about hacking. The difference between national security and economic interests. Yeah, and you think about, I mean, all of it will have a huge or could potentially have a huge impact. It absolutely would. And, and you know, the, the interesting thing is that when it comes to economic interests in particular, um, you know, that, that affects the, the average person a lot faster. National security impacts all of us at the right. end of the day. Right. But economic stuff is going to get to the individual that much quicker than, say, the, the grand scheme of things of, of national security. Are you amazed? Well, this is your world. Yeah. But just the amount of, I think, vulnerabilities that seem to be out there. And how quickly they've all kind of ramped up? Yeah, it, it and it just multiplies. Um, you know, it almost feels like on a, on a daily basis. Here's an interesting uh, perspective. You know, when you think about crime, just broadly speaking, right? And and if you look at crime, say say thirty years ago, on a spectrum, for somebody breaking into your house to somebody doing like a major crime, breaking into a bank, the methodology they utilized were, uh, let's say, they used a gun to to hold somebody up. Yeah. Okay. Today, the, the, the weapon of choice, if you want to call it a weapon, increasingly is cyber crimes or cyber methodology. And that is pervasive from very low-end phishing attack on somebody's email to very sophisticated nation-state stuff. Right. In their entire spectrum, right, this is now becoming the weapon of choice. Um, I mean, is there some... I don't know, D-Day, Disaster Day because of this? I, I, my personal opinion. Or Doomsday Scenario. I don't like to be so, you know, exaggerated. Dramatic. So it's uh, dramatic. But, yeah. but I just do wonder kind of yeah. is, is the preventive measures like what you're, you guys are doing keeping up with it? Because everybody always says, oh, well, you know, those who want to hack are, are staying several right. steps ahead right. of all of us. I, I think, I think the, the, the biggest gap, well, there's a technology gap that people like us help fill. Yeah. Right. Um, but there's another gap that is also of note, which is what I would call the mindset gap. 
and 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 it's it's very astonishing the the number of whether it's enterprise companies or government agencies who have a very old school mindset around what technologies to use and 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 the thinking that actually they can stop these things mm-hmm. versus recognizing that yes it's important to try and stop it but just understand that the odds are super high that people are going to break through right. therefore what do you've got inside your infrastructure that's going to catch this while they are in 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 flight if you will and and prevent them from doing the damage they're intended to do and that mindset gap is really important to your point about doomsday the the, the doomsday I, scenario here yeah. that i think i would worry about is somebody crippling our national infrastructure. Yeah. Call it the power, power grid, grids or something. financial systems. Yeah. Right. That, that's, that's the one that terrifies me. That's like the thing that I would system. be worried about the most. Um, just got about a minute and a half left here. Because you guys work in the world of artificial intelligence, can you find all the people you need, all the AI engineers that you need to get the work done? It, it is a super big hard. Global it's super race hard. For these workers. It is super hard. And, and, and I can tell you, you know, you know we have got four R&D centers San Jose, Austin, Texas. Cambridge, Massachusetts, Dublin, Ireland, mm-hmm. right? The reason we're in Dublin, Ireland is, yes, there's great talent there, but it allows us to diversify in terms of where to look for, for talent. It's very hard to recruit these folks there. And not just, by the way, AI. People who understand cybersecurity, period, are an equally rare breed nowadays as well. Um, one last question, and we've all just been watching um, the push by the Chinese and the government mm-hmm. to really develop their technology sector and creating kind of mini Silicon Valleys, many of them, yeah. um, throughout the country. Should every country kind of have some kind of government support for their technology industries? Just got about 30 seconds. I, I wouldn't say government support. I think you, the, the best thing the government can do, it, let's put this in our context, yeah. is in many ways to get out of the way. And I think that's our advantage. If we are successful in getting out of the way of our people, of, of our venture community and the entrepreneurs, that's our best shot versus government intervention. And they'll do it. So much fun. Thank you so awesome. much. Awesome. Yeah, come thank back, you. Come back to New York City. We'd love to. Hatesh Sheth, he's Chief Executive Officer of Vector Networks based in San Jose, California, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York City on this Wednesday. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Carol Masser, and this is Bloomberg Radio. <laughs> Bring in John Erlingman back with us. He's anchor of BNN Bloomberg's The Open, correspondent for CTV National News. John joining us uh, from Toronto once again. And John, we've all been talking about Amazon.com, what, their fourth annual Prime Day event. It's come a long way in four years, hasn't it? Boy, has it ever. I mean, I feel like the news cycle this week has been dominated by Donald Trump, Drake, and Amazon Prime. It's like there's, there's no room for anything else because we just keep talking about this. Um, you're right. We've, we've, we've talked a lot over the last couple of days about this Prime Day or 36-hour marathon of spending by Prime users. Um, and uh, this is something that started fairly conservatively for Amazon, Carol. You're right. 2015, they, they still generated a, a tremendous amount of, of revenue in a single day, something like $450 million sales based on the estimates. Uh, and even though a lot of people saw the headlines about an early challenge for Amazon, they were able to put a very healthy marketing spin on that. I think a lot of people were left with the idea that the demand was so strong that was one of the factors that was creating some challenges for Amazon. And if some of the estimates that are out there 
Bloomberg's been citing some industry pundits who, who believe maybe the goal was for $3.5 billion mm. worth of sales for this event. We're talking about 700% growth wow. over, over three years, which is pretty astounding. Right, because Amazon doesn't actually release any of the sales figures from Prime Day, correct? Which is a beautiful thing, I think, for them. It, <laughs> I know. Win-win, right? Well, you could take the same uh, argument with this Amazon headquarters. Say little... And then get everybody else to do the talking. Get lawmakers in different cities across the country to raise their hand and say why they would love Amazon to locate their uh, headquarters there. Uh, and that, in some ways, helps to drive the narrative. I mean, a lot of people are saying Amazon's getting so big that there's um, a bullseye. Uh, on the company, uh, and they'll be the capitalism target, if you will, right? Uh, but on the other hand, uh, they are um, the hot team, yeah, and a lot of people want to be on that hot team, whether it's uh, uh, lawmakers who are looking to locate jobs in their state or whether it's investors who have been clamoring to buy this stock over the last couple of years. Yeah, interesting. Um, what's also interesting is they had some technical glitches, which is not uncommon. Sure. You know, even for a typical retailer or, or, you know, when they've got some kind of promotion, it's not uncommon for the website to either slow down or you can't access it or you have problems with it. Yeah. Um, I have have to wonder how much of that – I'm not here to – been conspiracy theories. I, I, I do wonder how much of that uh, ultimately was a win in the end, just creating even more buzz. You know, they had those those fail pages with the cute little dogs on them, and they had they were they were at the ready with an assortment of pages saying it's hard to load, and, and these cute little dogs, and then it spiraled, and then they said in the end, I mean, they told us in a press release that they sold something like 100 million products. I mean, it's an astounding number, and I think the bigger question now is if you're a Walmart or any of the other retailers like eBay that have been trying to grab some headlines over the last couple of days. How do you do battle with Amazon? And I think, Carol, it's getting to the point, too, I mean, in in the world of investment, Mm -hmm. everybody now talks about the boardroom question, what would Jeff Bezos do? That was the question we used to ask about Steve Jobs. And it's interesting that in trading today, Amazon's market valuation uh, briefly touched $900 billion. There are a lot of people now who are wondering whether or not Amazon's get going to get to that trillion dollar market cap before Apple does, which which would truly be astounding. But the yeah. fact that the market cap of Amazon's up more than six hundred billion dollars in the last three years speaks to that. Right, Amazon market uh, cap right now eight hundred over eight hundred ninety four billion dollars, and let me just look what their revenue is expected to be this year about two hundred and thirty seven billion. And if I look at Apple, their market cap is over nine hundred thirty six billion, and their revenues projected this year for about two hundred sixty two billion. I mean, they're they're just kind of neck and neck there. Hey, John, before you go, I want to talk a little bit about Twitter, if we may. Uh, Twitter getting their first downgrade in six months, and this stock you know, um, has had some problems, had some questions, but this year just kind of, you know, full steam ahead, up about 81% this year. Who knew? Who knew, right, <laughs> that Twitter was going to be the standout stock coming into 2018? Nuts. I mean, I know obviously Donald Trump uh, gets us all um, 
on Twitter following where the news is going. Yeah. But you're right. The, the fact that the shares have rallied, I think, something like 50% since late April uh, resulted in Macquarie saying, time for a breather. And now is crunch time. And we saw it with Netflix earnings this week. Amazon has uh, a pretty good track record of putting together those impressive results, which fuels the stock. Now Twitter's got to deliver. And I think that is, that, that is a big undertaking for a company that has not seen user growth the same way that we have seen, for example, Facebook consistently grow both their own platform and Instagram. It's going to be a very wild end to tech earnings season because you've got yeah. so many these companies fueling the the broader market run and and obviously we've talked so much about the nasdaq outperforming the s&p this year in part because of this impressive performance from amazon and netflix and facebook and the list goes on so earnings season will be important for sure twitter 32 billion dollar market cap and they're projected to have john about 2.9 billion in revenues this year just for some comparison with amazon and apple john erlkman terrific anchor bnn bloomberg's the open correspondent for ctv national news joining us on the phone from toronto I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Time for the drive to the close. Joining us from Westport, Connecticut, Michael Sheldon, Executive Director, Chief Investment Officer at RDM Financial Group. Hey, Michael, nice to have you back here on Bloomberg Radio. What's the most recent investment strategy that you recommended for one of your clients based on this environment? Well, what we do at, at RDM, we have a lot of different clients and they all have different investment objectives. So what we do is we put together investment models, and then we basically run financial plans and figure out, based on clients' investment objectives and their, their, their risk tolerance level, basically which of the investment plans they should be in. So again, we have different models, but I can tell you, broadly speaking, some of the things we're thinking about this year in terms of our investment stance are the U.S. versus overseas, we currently have about 15% overseas. We were going to add more to that earlier in the year, but we just felt that the U.S. was the outperforming other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're moving towards uh, dividend growth versus dividend yield, given that the Fed's raising interest rates. And the other thing is we're sort of looking at companies and industries that are likely to outperform or stand out in their fields over the next three to five years. So those are some of the broad strokes we're sort of thinking about. And looking at sectors, we're looking at tech, financials, healthcare. We're still growth over value, and we're keeping a little bit away from consumer staples. Those probably won't perform better until we start to see some slowing in the economy and more of a risk-off environment. The growth over value stance, Michael, is it because you see the economic momentum that's out here uh, or out there, or is it a case that it's really hard to find value right now, or a little bit of both? Well, the growth is growth has been outperforming value for several years now, and it seems like that trend is kind of long in the tooth. But the growth stocks that we're looking at, especially in technology, for example, I mean, we are diversified, but the growth stocks that people talk about are actually generating four, three to four times the overall growth rate of the S&P. So they're really putting up sales numbers and revenue numbers, which make their, their P.E. ratios and uh, legitimate, really, in this kind of market. What kind of tech, though? Are you talking, you know, the, the outrageous, you know, run-ups that we've seen in some of the FANG stocks? Or are you talking more reasonable, um, 
valuations and tech valuations type names? It's really a cross-section of stocks. So we own individual stocks, we own ETFs, and we also own actively managed um, mutual funds. Mm-hmm. So we really own a cross-section of, of individual stocks. We own some of the FANG stocks, not all of them. Right. Um, but these are long-term holdings for the most part, unless something really changes within the companies. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, I think we're all trying to figure out where we are in this market cycle in this economic cycle. Dave Wilson had a chart of the day, and uh, basically the takeaway was the nine-year bull market in U.S. stocks has interest rates on its side. And this is according to some research out by CFRA. And they're, they're, looking, they're looking at the Fed's key rate exceeding year-to-year changes in U.S. consumer prices by, a certain, by one and a quarter percentage points before every bear market since the 1960s. This is out by Sam Stovall. And currently, the upper end of the Fed Fund's target rate is at 0.9 point lower than the most recent inflation re- reading uh, for June. So basically saying eh, we have more room to run, even though we've had a long run-up uh, in equities. You agree that the fundamentals are out there maybe for more gains uh, in stocks? Well, as we look, I-, I would agree with that. As we look ahead over the next six to, time, six to nine months or so, the next few quarters, right now we don't see a recession ahead. Yeah. So we try and figure out what's going to take the expansion off course. And the big factors out there are the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates. Historically, that's not been a great sign for the markets, but we'll see. They're continuing to raise rates because the economy is doing well, importantly. Some sort of geopolitical event, which is really hard to forecast. Some sort of financial crisis. Um, For example, the great credit crisis we had back in 2008. We don't see anything like that right now on the horizon. And then more recently, you have trade wars and trade tariffs, and that's certainly a a concern. Uh, Over the last 50 years or so, the trend has been towards more free trade, not less free trade. So you have two really sort of strong-willed people in terms of the Chinese leader and and Donald Trump, and it's hard to see how that will sort of play out. I think our our thinking so far is that ultimately, ultimately, calmer heads will prevail, um, and the economy will continue to, to remain on track. But clearly, that's that's a risk we have to keep in mind. Michael, you talked about 15% overseas. You're going to keep it at that, or might you add to that exposure? Well, it's interesting. I mean, if you look at the, the world, the majority of the world's population, companies, and market cap all reside outside the United States. So right. there's a real good reason to invest outside or have a significant, a larger percentage of your, or make sure you have enough foreign waiting overseas. Uh, we had, uh, for several years, we actually had very little foreign exposure from about 2010 through about 2016, and that turned out to be a, an astute move. Uh, so we added about 15% last year as foreign markets started to improve. There, was, there were less fire bells going off overseas, if you will. Um, we may add more foreign to our, our models at some point, mm-hmm. but we're sort of comfortable right now because the U.S. Yeah. economy seems to be leading the world right now. Yeah, it's interesting. What about emerging markets, which have really been, you know, um, taking a hit this year? I'm just looking at the MSCI uh, Emerging Markets Index. It's down almost 8% this year. Uh, is it time to maybe consider some of those names or you'd wait a bit? We have a little bit of emerging market exposure through ETFs right now, but but not a significant amount. Um, with, the, with the dollar starting to rise a little bit, it's up about 7% over the past few months, and interest rates rising in the U.S., it's a more challenging time for, for emerging markets right now. On an absolute basis, if you look at P.E. ratios right now, uh, valuations are not dirt cheap in emerging markets, but on a relative basis, which is important because you have to look at all the relative valuations and where you can invest. On a relative basis, foreign markets and emerging markets do look attractive, but, but they need some kind of catalyst to, for us to feel more comfortable about that. 
Hey, Michael, you reminded us and reminded our producer that you guys earlier this year had said that this year could be the year of threes. Three percent GDP growth, three percent wage growth, and three percent U.S. Treasury bond yields. Not quite there. Could we still hit it? Just quickly. Yeah, I think there's a good possibility. Uh, we're going to have three. We're likely to have three percent GDP growth this quarter. Three um, percent wage growth is still a possibility. And we did get over 3% for yields, and we may end the year there. We'll see. Yeah. What a year it's been. It's only July. Michael Sheldon, thank you so much. Executive Director, Chief Investment Officer, RDM Financial Group, joining us on the phone from Westport, Connecticut. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 